If you would pray with me. Maybe you're here this morning seeking. Maybe this is just the time you come or maybe somebody uh, uh, you're coming for somebody else. Uh, Whatever your situation or scenario is, I want to invite you to pray a prayer like this. Would you say, Jesus, speak to me today? God, uh, I want to open my heart up and I just want to invite you to speak to me. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a confidence that if you left this earth where you would go. But, you know, today you can know. And the way that you can know is the Bible says we all have to recognize that we're sinners. That none of us are good enough to save ourselves. We're not going to get that good. We're going to continue to make mistakes. We're going to continue to sin. But the standard of God is perfection. And the only one who ever lived a perfect life was Jesus Christ, his son. And he willingly went to the cross and said, I will take the sacrifice upon myself. I will pay the cost of sin because there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. God, because you're perfect and holy, sin must be forgiven. It must be paid. And so I will pay it. So that if we would believe in him, he lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death we should have died. And say, God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus died for me. And I transfer my trust to what he did for me on the cross. Save me, forgive me, extend your grace to me. The Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord and believe in his heart that God has raised with health and profess with our mouth and he shall be saved. So today, if you've not done that, I want to invite you to do that. If you're a believer, if you need to follow through with believer's baptism as a testimony to the world that you know Christ, I invite you to do that. If you need to... Get involved in the church. If you need to begin to make an impact in the kingdom, I want to invite you to let God speak to you today. God, we thank you for this time. We invite you to speak to us now. Amen. Well, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and of course we're celebrating uh, Easter Sunday today. And uh, as we celebrate it, uh, we do so in recognition that Christ is, is risen. You know, Blaise Pascal <clears throat> had a, a great insight that he gave. Uh, great Blaise Pascal, most of you probably studied him in school, but if you don't remember who he was, he was a great mathematician and physicist. Uh, he also invented the mechanical calculator. And Blaise Pascal uh, had this argument. He was a deep man of faith. He said uh, he came up with something called Pascal's wager. And it goes like this. Either there is a God or there's not. You must decide. You must make a wager, so to speak, on whether there is a God or if there's not a God. And if there is a God, you must decide whether you will follow him, whether you will commit to him, or whether you'll choose not to. Now, if there is a God, and what he says is true, uh, then you have two choices. Either you can commit your life to him and believe, and you will gain everything if that's true, or you can say it's not true and say, I don't buy it. And if you're wrong, you lose everything. If you're right, you gain eternity. And if you're wrong, you lose everything. It's Pascal's wager. So today you must make the decision, is there a God? And if there is a God, is the Bible true? Is the story of the resurrection true? You must make a wager. You might say, you know, it just doesn't fit in my worldview. That's just not, I don't, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And you will be making a wager that you're right. That you intellectually have established superiority uh, over a lot of the known world. And over centuries and centuries of brilliant men and women. 
And if you make that decision, you're making a big bet that you're right. Pascal also said this. Pascal said that God sheds enough light for every man to see his truth if he really wants to see it. But there's also enough shadow and darkness that will hide the truth if you choose not to. So what Pascal is saying, in effect, is, do you want to believe? For if you do, God will shed light, and he will show you the light. He will show you the truth. But if you choose not to, you can live in darkness. You can live apart from him. Now, we're going to talk about some reasons that you should believe. And I know we've talked a lot about it before, but the historical realities has to always start with the dating of the Gospels. We talked we talked about it a few weeks ago. If you want to go back three weeks and listen to that uh, that on our computer on our, I mean on our website, you're wel- welcome to listen to that. It'll give you more information. But here's what we know: that most of the discrediting of the Gospels of the New Testament come in this form or fashion: that the Gospels were written hundreds of years after the time of Christ. The reason that Christ could make the predictions that the temple would be destroyed and that Jerusalem would be seized, the reason he could say that is because it was written hundreds of years later. And that's the reason that we have this legend, so to speak, that we have. Because 200, 300, 400 years later it was written, and they had all the facts, and they went back and they inserted these things, and that's what we have today. And that's why we have the legends that we have. But here, here is one just ridiculously in-your-face fact that we can't go with. And a lot of the books, a lot of the magazines, of course, Dan Browning's The Da Vinci Code, his book's all based on the fact that the Gospels were written hundreds of years after the time of Christ, anywhere from two to 300 years after the time of Christ. But here's what we know. Back in the late 1930s, there was a discovery. There was an archaeological find in Egypt. And what they found was part of the Gospel of John. It's called the John Ryland Fragments and some of the some of the scriptures from John chapter eight are found there, and they found actually numerous fragments, but they found some that they could read, and they found them from the Gospel of John. And so, uh, professional historians and archaeologists they went back and they had these documents dated. And what they found was uh, the writing style, the type of paper, and and even when they dated it. It had to be somewhere close to 100 A.D. and no more than 150 A.D. And many of them argued for even a little bit earlier date, but somewhere from 100 to 150 A.D. And uh, what they found is these were copies. These weren't original writings. And they were found in Alexandria, Egypt, which is literally hundreds and hundreds of miles away from where the Gospels were written. So what they deduced was, okay, we can say one to, you know, being, we'll just say it's 125, 135, these were written. Well, it would have taken probably, we estimate, 20, 25, maybe even 30 years for these Gospels to have gone that far for them to be rewritten and to go that far from that area, particularly in a time when there wasn't modern transportation. So as they estimate, they said it, it, must, have, it must have been written uh, somewhere or, you know, somewhere around the early part of the century. Or, matter of fact, you can go back to the ri- original uh, Gospels, and they must have ri- be written at least by 100 A.D. Many would even say further back than that, which would go with traditional dating of John around 90 A.D. The other thing that scholars almost universally will say is John was the last Gospel written. 
And then Luke was before that. And then Matthew and Mark were the earliest Gospels. And we talked about before how Matthew and Mark don't talk about, uh, Luke doesn't even talk about in Acts the destruction of the temple, which was a monumental event, the seas of Jerusalem, uh, the destruction of the Jewish nation. They don't mention that in the Gospels. They don't talk about the death of Peter, the death of James. And so the only reason they probably wouldn't mention that is because it hadn't happened yet, because those were mammoth events. But even in the dating, at a minimum, we have to say it was at least late first century. And as we look at Mark, we know it was earlier than that. So when you hear about these stories and these books and these magazines that everybody wants to buy because they've proven it wrong, they've proven that the Bible's not true, they've proven that it had an early dating, you can go back and just remember the John Ryland scriptures, okay? The John Ryland findings. Uh, that's just a, a evident that uh, even historians will get an evident proof that historians will give to the dating of the gospel of John. So we have the dating, and we'll talk more about why that's important. Another fact is the falsifiability of Scripture. The falsifiability of Scripture. Now, what does falsifiability mean? It simply means this, that there are facts that are given that could have been proven wrong or inaccurate. So let me give you one of the more popular passages that we read that's just an example of it. You know, Luke chapter 2, it's the Christmas story. We do it all the time. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Falsifiable. We know Caesar Augustus existed during that time, and the whole empire should be registered. We know that he forced them to, to register for taxes. The first registration was took place while Quinarius was governor of Syria. We know Quinarius was governor of Syria. So everyone went to be registered into his hometown. And Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So we know all those places existed. We know that uh, Joseph went there. And here's the thing to remember. <clears throat> if this gospel was written as we think it was, somewhere between 50 and 60 A.D., those people would have been people who had been eyewitness to Jesus Christ. They would have seen Jesus Christ. They would have known Jesus Christ. And those many of those people would have still been alive. And they could have said, this isn't true. There wasn't any Joseph. Those cities don't exist. The thing about it is, when you're doing ancient history, your greatest form of, of accuracy and your most prestigious sources are those of eyewitnesses. Because eyewitnesses can be cross-examined. There will be people in the culture that say, no, these people didn't exist if those writings occurred during that time. But that's not what we see occurring. Because of the falsifiability of Scripture, because these facts could be proven wrong, uh, we know they're true. C.S. Lewis, uh, the great writer, uh, the great British writer, uh, he was an expert in legends and stories. And he said, one of the compelling aspects of the truth of the gospel for me was I had studied legends and stories all of my life. And as I studied them, he said, I, as I read the gospel, I could tell this was no legend. When I would study legends, they would always talk very generally. They would talk about a hero, and they would talk about these people. But I wouldn't be given specific times, specific places, and often I wouldn't even be given anything more than a first name. I wouldn't be given a time period. And so as I studied them, it was very evident what was legend and what was historical fact. And I can tell you for a fact that the Gospels are not legends. Another reason that we can believe the truth of it. There was a guy named Celsus, a Greek philosopher, 
who lived at the end of the second century, about 150 to 160 years after the time of Christ. And Celsus, as he was seeing the Roman Empire literally transformed, as he was seeing his friends and people come to Christ, his constituents, uh, he was really disturbed by it. And so he set out to write against Christianity and to disprove Christianity. And so you know what his principal argument was against Christianity? As he went back and he read the stories, as he read the Gospels, he said this. He said, there's no way that Christianity can be anything but a legend. It couldn't have been true because I'll tell you why. Because the first people who came to the tomb and discovered Jesus that was not there were women. And we all know that women are illogical and hysterical and you can't trust the word of women. That was his principal argument. And a lot of chauvinistic men go, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right, that must not be true. And we look at that and we're horrified. I know all you women are horrified. But in a culture where women were not allowed to vote, in a culture where women were not, their word and their testimony was not admissible in a court of law, then that was a, that was kind of a thing to say. But let me ask you this. If I was making up a legend a couple of hundred years later, would I go back and use women as my principal? Uh, individuals of finding the empty tomb. Not only that, one of the women, as we read here in the first verse of Ma- uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 1, it said, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, and we know from the other gospel writers that Mary Magdalene was actually the first one there. She was the one who had seven demons cast out of her. Hey, if I'm going to make up a cult, or I'm going to make up a new faith, and I want everybody to follow it, and I'm writing it hundreds of years later, here's what I wouldn't do. I, I wouldn't say... Well, there were these women. Matter of fact, the first woman, she was she had been demon-possessed. I wouldn't say that if I wanted credibility. You wouldn't write that unless it was true. No, you would say, there were three outstanding, respectable men. And they came, and they saw it, and their names were John. They were all John. It was a common name back then. And their names were John. And they saw it. And because of their reputation, you can count on it. They went back and shared. That's what I would do if it was a legend. I wouldn't make this up. I wouldn't say that women were the first one. I wouldn't say that Mary Magdalene was the first one there. The Bible continues, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they would go and anoint him. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. And they were saying one to another, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they observed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. They go to this tomb and they are thinking they are taking these spices, these expensive spices to anoint the body of Jesus. And on the way they go, who's going to roll the stone away so that we can do this? Now, what's always struck me odd, and if you think about it, if you were making up a story, what would you do? You would say uh, they went expecting because Jesus has said over and over again, I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He just said it in chapter 14, which is just a couple of days before. He said it again. He said it over and over. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. You're going to kill. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer at the hands of man. The Son of Man will die, and then the third day, I'll rise again. He keeps saying this. If I was making up a story, you know what I'd do? I'd go, you know, and I'm, I'm Mark, or I'm John, or one of these guys would go... You know, well, except for me, you know, I thought, I remember him saying that, and so I went and checked it out. But nobody says that. It's not on anybody's radar screen. Because you know why? Because they don't believe that that's the way the resurrection works. If you were a Jew, you believed that there was going to be a general resurrection at the end of time where everybody 
is going to be judged. But there wasn't this individual resurrection stuff. And the Greeks believed, well, the spirit will just simply be apart from the body. So no one was thinking particularly a bodily resurrection. They've just missed it. Another proof of our text. And so the Bible says, when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man whom we know to be an angel dressed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were amazed and alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He's not here. See the place where they put him. You're here looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's been resurrected. He's gone. As we continue, he says, But go and tell the disciples and Peter. And that and Peter, that's a gracious, loving comment. Because Peter, we know, has just denied him a couple of days before. Peter probably thinks this is the end. That's it. I can't believe this has happened. And to hop it all off before he died, I completely abandoned him. I denied him. But in his gracious kindness, he says, tell Peter. He says, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you. Just like he said, he will be there. He will be there. The impact of the resurrection is tremendous. When you think about it, the truth of it is Christianity should have died. It should have stopped. Do you realize there were hundreds and hundreds of leaders and figures, some of them even making, calling themselves the Messiah, who were crucified, who were killed? And you know what happened to their movement every time? It was over. They'd be crucified. Their followers would scatter. And that was the end of it. I guess he wasn't the Messiah. That's what constantly happened. They'd think, oh, this is going to be the guy. And then he wasn't. He would be killed, and everybody would just run away. And that's what's happened right here with the disciples. We really thought that we really thought it would be him, but it, apparently it's not. And so they're out hiding, and they think they've made a mistake. You know, another an, the, the truth of it is, the founder was crucified. If you're the leader, and you're killed, you're crucified. That's not a good thing, particularly if you're a Jew, because the Bible says that cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. So he's crucified, and he's crucified upon a tree. And so now what happens? Well, we know that uh, on the third, we know that they come to the tomb, and then on the third day they see him as well. The other reason that it shouldn't have happened, that Christianity should have been impossible, is because if you were a Jew, the one thing you believed that there is a God. And he's not a man. God would never come in the form of man. But that's exactly what happened. And you see Judaism uh, being revitalized. You see hundreds and hundreds of people uh, proclaiming that Christ is Lord. The impact of the resurrection. You know, if you're here this morning, you go, I I just don't believe all that stuff. And I just, just don't see how that's true. One of the facts you have to deal with is why did it literally transform the known world at that time. Why were the disciples completely transformed? Guys who were out hiding and running away during this time all of a sudden are so radically converted that they're willing to die a martyr's death. Peter and some of the other disciples are literally crucified upside down. They all die for their faith except for John who's imprisoned. Why would you go from the place of hiding to boldly standing up, proclaiming the truth and dying For your faith, unless it was true. I'll tell you why. 
You know, a lot of times we put a lot of stock in the, in the uh, empty tomb, and that's important. But it's not just the cross. It's not just that the tomb was empty. And let me tell you why the tomb is so important. It's because if Jesus would have just reappeared to them, they would have thought, this is a ghost. This is a spirit. But he came back in body. And the tomb was empty. They had proof that he had left the tomb. And then when he reappeared... They completely erratically transform. Remember, Thomas said, let me put my hands in your side. And they see him and they're transformed. They're radically transformed. And we see that 120 people see Jesus. I remember when I was at my former church, we had a debate uh, with William Lane Craig, the foremost probably apologist in the country today. And he was debating Dr. Keith Parsons, who was the president of the Atheist Association at that time. And um, when we got to this historical fact and all the sightings uh, that had, as he used the historical information, 120 people had seen him. He had to deal with that historical fact. And so you know what Dr. Parsons' answer was? He said, I, he said uh, as Dr. Craig said, well, why did 120 people see him if he didn't really reappear? He goes, well... He said, I think they had an hallucination. 120 people at different times? Yes, that's my answer. 120 people, mass hallucination over multiple days. That's right. Is that the best you can do? That's your historical documentation? That's where you're going to land? Before LSD came out, everybody's having hallucinations about seeing Jesus? Is that where you're going? What about all the hundreds and thousands that would die for that truth after that time? Who would die a martyr's death, which, by the way, people are still doing today. What about Christianity exploding? How did it go from this, this just ragtag group of 12 followers who scatter and who are afraid to the world's largest religion today? How did it almost literally overtake the Roman Empire? It was estimated there in Jesus' day that there were somewhere around 40 million people that were alive. 40 to 45 million people that were living during the first century and uh, to the known world, to the Roman Empire. And then we see uh, statistics say anywhere from 8 million to 28 million people, depending on who you read, converted to Christianity. Think about those numbers. What do you, how do you explain that? Even if you go with the most conservative, that 8 million people, how do you explain that number of people coming to Christ, converting to Christianity in the first 250, 275 years? Do you say, well, I'm sure it was a cool and fun religion. No, they were dying. A lot of them were dying for their faith, okay? It may be cool in North America, but hey, think about in Pakistan right now. Think about the pastor who's in Iran right now. He ain't doing that because it's cool. He believes in the resurrection. And he believes that God is going to make all things new. And this is a brief time, but one day he will be with his family in heaven. That God's going to create a new earth and all will be right and all will be as it should be when God creates the new heaven and the new earth. Hey, we have to deal with that fact of why Christianity exploded. We have to deal with the fact of why the disciples were transformed and why followers through the centuries have literally given their life for Christ. And I believe it's because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And not just the resurrection, but that over the next 40 days, 120 people saw him, who became radically saved and transformed. And then we see Pentecost happen after that, where 3,000 come to Christ. You've got to deal with that historical fact. The question is, what will you wager? You know, we're speaking about 
resurrection and it means new life. And I, I want us to just think about new life for just a moment. And I, I don't have time to get into this. This is another sermon for another day. But, you know, we so often associate heaven with a, you know, with a harp and an angel up there. And oh, what's that going to be? Oh, I don't know. That's such a big deal. Is that really what I want to do for eternity? And the truth of it is, sometimes we just have bad theology because the Bible tells us that God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to create a new earth where it's perfect, where it's whole, and where uh, everything is right. And your best day on earth will be your absolute worst day on the new earth as God recreates it for His children. And those who've gone before us will be there with us when God creates that. The Bible says, Behold, I prepare a place for you. He is preparing a home for those who know Him and believe in Him and call Him by name. And if you believe that fact, then that's what makes you say, you know what? I will willingly give my life if that's what it costs. I believe in that truth and I can't wait for that truth. Let me give you another example. Um, and I've shared this before, but I just think it's a great story. Uh, I, actually, I didn't share this part. I'm going to get to a part in just a moment. I want to share with you a few folks who've come to Christ uh, as of late and just kind of share a little bit of their story. This is Russ and Susan Sissick, and they were in their earlier service, and uh, they both had spouses who had ALS, and they were dying of ALS, and Susan's husband passed away, but Susan was a teacher in Coppell, and, uh, and Russ's nephew, Russ lived in Massachusetts, uh, her nephew said, hey, I have an uncle and my and aunt, my aunt's dying of ALS. Would you be willing to talk to her by phone? He said, sure. And so she began to talk with him. And it wasn't long after that, after about uh, nine months, that his wife died. And uh, they, be- they continued to talk on the phone. They had never seen each other, but they had ch- shared a common pain. And then one day he was flying through DFW. He said, hey, I'd like to meet you. So they met. They began to visit. They began to talk. Uh, one thing led to another. They got married. She moved to Massachusetts. And they lived there for 10 years. And then a few months ago, they decided they wanted to move here. She wanted to move back home. And so she moved back. They moved back here. And she said, you know, when we get there, I'd like for us to try to find a church. He goes, okay, well, that'll be fine. If you want to find us a church. So they began to ask a couple of neighbors. And they asked some people. And they, uh, one of their neighbors, she said, they, don't, they didn't even go to church. But I said, well, where would you recommend? She goes, well, I've heard... I've heard Rock Point probably is a good place to visit, so maybe you should go over there. So wait, some, peop- some people that didn't even go to church, they recommended they come over here. And so they came, and, um, and so they sat, sat here, and, and uh, Russ said, I, as I sat there, I just felt the presence of God. I'd never felt that before, and as, as I was listening, God just began to speak to me. And I realized, you know what, this is true. This, this is God, and I want to know Him. And so he came to dinner with a pastor, and... And I was just sharing, and I said, you know, a lot of people come from different backgrounds. A lot of people, that when they start coming to church, they don't even own a Bible. And so we've given away literally hundreds and hundreds of Bibles. And afterwards, he goes, I've never owned a Bible. And I said, well, we'll, we'll remedy that for you. We'll get you one. And then just two weeks later, he came to starting point over here. And he said, I'm ready. I want to commit my life to Christ. And we baptized him here just a couple of weeks ago. Neat story how God redeemed that pain. This is Colleen Preston. Colleen said, you know, I found myself... Uh, a few years ago as in a place I never dreamed I would. I found myself a single mom, and I was so frightened. I was so scared. This is never what I had dreamed or had wanted, but sometimes things just happen. And I was wondering, how am I going to raise my boys alone? How am I going to make it? How is this going to happen? And I'd been attending church here, but I remember one Sunday uh, you offered prayer. And so I came down for prayer, and you prayed for me, and then you told me to talk to this lady. And I sat right here on the front row, and... And I talked to this lady named Holly, and she began to share with me. And 
Uh, she went through the gospel with me, and I said, you know, I want to commit my life to Christ. And I just felt an overwhelming peace flood my heart and flood my soul. And from that moment, I've known that Jesus is with me. Not that it hasn't been hard, not that it hasn't been difficult, uh, but we baptized her just a few months ago. This is her picture of her baptism. It's... Let me tell you this story. This is the story I was going to mention earlier that many of you have heard some, some of you heard before, but I want to, I want you to hear the whole thing and how it's still having an impact. This is Warren and Julie Reichel. Warren's our high school minister. And, uh, al- almost two years ago, uh, they got pregnant, but, uh, not long after that, they found that they had a terminal pregnancy. And so they had a choice to make. And, um, you know, one of their specialist doctors said, you know, you probably want to consider termination in this instance. There's literally no chance that this baby will live and it's going to have very, you know, it'll, it'll be very difficult circumstance. So, they thought about it and they said, you know, we're going to live by our faith. We're going to live by our conviction. We're going to take this baby and we're going to ask God to bless this process and just use it. And so that's what we're going to do. And some of you have been in that same situation and you've done it and you've made the hard choice as well. And God redeems that. And, and matter of fact, there were there was a couple in our church that ministered to them that had been through a similar situation. And uh, so, excuse me, leave, leave, leave me on that. Uh, go back to them. And uh, so they'd have made that decision that uh, they were going to... Take this, this baby to full, uh, ter- to full pregnancy, to full term. And they said, you know, God used this situation. We don't know how you can, but we're going to ask you to use this. And we, we believe that one day we will see uh, our child again uh, if you choose to take him. But we believe that and we're going to live by our faith. So uh, we're telling their story. And the day that they're telling their story, another couple comes into our church. This is Jeff and Melissa Horn. And Jeff and Melissa came in the first day. And they had been diagnosed with a terminal pregnancy. And she was pregnant. And she said, you know, let's go to church. I I just need some hope. I need God to speak to me. I just, I need some strength right now. And it was a very painful time in their lives. And when they came in, guess what story uh, I was telling? I was telling the story of um, the Reichels. And as they heard that story, she said, I began to cry. And she goes, my husband didn't believe at all. He totally did not believe, had no form of church or any kind of background. She goes, I, I definitely believed in, in God, but I was just seeking and I was searching. And so uh, they heard that story. And so they began to come and they began to share. And uh, they began to get involved and begin to read. And we began to talk to Jeff. And then uh, a few weeks ago, right over here in Starting Point, Jeff prayed and asked Christ to come in his heart. And Melissa and Jeff were both baptized here a few weeks ago. But the story doesn't stop there. It continues. There's another family that comes. And uh, they didn't really have much of a church background. The woman had never really been to church. He had been when he was a child. And they just had not gone in a long time. And she said, you know, I was at work. And there was this lady who had a daughter who had a terminal pregnancy. And she was keeping that, that child to full term. And I just thought, why are you doing that? That is the craziest thing. And the lady just mentioned, well, part of it's just our faith. She goes, I, I don't even resonate with that. I don't even get what you're talking about. And she goes, and it just started bothering me. And I was just thinking, you know, what, what is the purpose of my life anyway? And why am I here? And why am I existing? And I told my husband, we, we need to go check out church. She said, we were driving down this road and we saw the police officers out. And they said, well, there must be something going on there. They've got police officers putting cars in. <laughs> and so they pull in and they come on in. And guess what story I'm telling that day? Jeff and Melissa Horn's story. And she said, it just, she goes, I just started to tremble as I heard that. Cause I just said, God, if you're real, speak to me. Speak to me. So they heard that. They began to come. And guess what they did? A few weeks ago, they came to starting point. They prayed to receive Christ and we just baptized them. 
you know what? I don't believe God's done redeeming. We can trace it back even farther than Julian Warren Reichel, by the way, of people who were faithful and chose to live out their values and said, God, use this. And you know, you don't always get to see it here on earth, but can I tell you, that is a picture of what God does. He redeems all pain and suffering for righteousness sake. And I believe he does a lot of it here on earth. He does most of it on earth, but he will completely do it in heaven one day. You know what I believe? I, you know, when I had my first job, it was really bad. It was horrible. And I had a very difficult situation. It was unhealthy. I can't, I can't even go into it because you'd be disturbed. But there were just a lot of bad things, and it was really, really, really hard. And um, some days when I think it's tough here, and i got a great job, but sometimes when I think it's tough here, I'll think about that and I'll go, this is a great job, man. This job is, I'll just remember what that was like and I'll just, I'll just think, oh, God, may I never complain again because I think some people live in a, an environment like that. I think people, some people have to live constantly having their values challenged constantly in this situation where you're belittled. I, that's the thing. And some people have to live, this is a great job. And I'll just think about that and I'll think, I am so blessed. So one of the reasons I love this church and I love this job because I had a rotten one before. And I'll tell you this. You can't ever appreciate a good job till you had a bad job, okay? Here's the way it works, I believe, okay? And this is not in the Bible. This is from Ron, all right? I believe those of you, when you get to heaven, when you get to the new earth, those of you who've had an incredibly challenging and difficult and painful life, I mean, it's going to be like heaven on steroids for you. You know what I mean? It's going to be so unspeakable because you know how far God has brought you. You you realize the immensity of the blessings of being with those loved ones who's gone on before you. The suffering that you've endured. How wonderful it will be. I almost feel sorry for the people who don't have tragedy in their life. Who have an easy life. I feel sorry for you people, okay? Go out and have a tragedy so you can enjoy the afterlife, okay? I mean, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. But you know what? When you think about people who are suffering in India, people who are suffering in Pakistan, people who are being tortured... In Iran, for their faith, as this pastor we know about is right now. Man, as he thinks about it, you know what his hope is? That this world's not my home. That there's going to be a new earth where it's going to be ripe. And where all of this is going to be joy unspeakable. And the difference is only going to make me, pray, make him pray, me praise him more. Embracing the new life will be such joy. So there's hope. That God redeems all things. That He will make all things new for the believer who trusts Him. So here's my question to you. Have you experienced that redemption? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in the claims of the resurrection? What will be your, your wager? Will you say, I do believe. And I believe God has given me enough light that I'm walking through the light that I see. And I believe and I accept it. And I commit myself to Him. I'm not going to trust that I'm going to be good enough or that God's just going to wave His hand and say, hey, it's all, everybody's in, no big deal. I believe I'm a sinner and I believe Jesus died for me and I put my trust and faith in Him. Have you done that? If not, I want to invite you to do that today.